Hello and welcome to the Transforming Society podcast from Bristol University Press. My name's George Miller, and I'm the editor of a new paperback series that BUP has launched this spring. Over the next few years, What Is It For? will explore the purpose of a range of institutions, beliefs, ideologies, and other things that make up the contemporary world, from veganism to AI, nuclear weapons to the monarchy. Inherent in the series' concept is the idea that the answer to the question will most probably be complex and up for debate, but that it's worth asking in order to think about how the future could be better. I've recorded three short conversations with each of the authors of the first three titles, War, Cybersecurity and Philanthropy. And this is the second of my conversations with Rodri Davis, the author of What is Philanthropy For? In this second episode, I wanted to get into something Rodri tackles in the book, the difference between philanthropy and charity. Charity is often seen as more immediate, more individual, small-scale and palliative, while philanthropy is large-scale, long-term, strategic, systemic, more rational. But I wanted to know, is the distinction valid and useful? The the distinction between philanthropy and charity historically has been very important and has often been a way that people have chosen to to draw dividing lines um, between different schools of thought or different ways of approaching things. I think where exactly those dividing lines are is is contentious and kind of continues to be. But as you say, one particular thing that is often pointed to is a distinction between I guess in some sense, head and heart. So charity is on the heart side. You know, it's kind of emotive, it's subjective, it's about the individual and and why they are driven to to give often to other individuals. And then philanthropy is supposed to be more rational and, and considered and strategic. And that distinction between you know being strategic on the one hand or being driven by by the head and being kind of emotive or being driven by the heart on the other hand that really is something that's still a very much attention within philanthropy today and you know within the sort of wider world of, of civil society so i do think it is really valuable to think in in that way particularly because i think historically there have been lots and lots of efforts to try and make philanthropy more rational or to kind of impose more more order on it because it's otherwise frustratingly irrational and kind of loose and baggy and you know some of these are you can see the motivations and you can see why why it was done but they've led to various kind of unintended consequences and we're seeing that play out a little bit again at the moment so i think there's a real it's a really important time to be aware of some of that historical precedent and one of the, one of the things that listeners might be interested in is that you use a range of historical illustrations in the book. I mean, illustrations in a sort of a pictorial sense, which are really very telling in lots of regards, one of which is showing that there has been a critique of philanthropy as sort of hyper-rational to the point of ignoring immediate suffering. Maybe, maybe you could talk about the cartoon that sort of exemplifies that in the book. That's the, the George Cruikshank. Um, yes. It's called The Universal Philanthropist, and it's a uh, cartoon from the late 18th century and it's of a wealthy man um, who is lashing out very angrily at a poor family who have come into to his home and he's basically saying to them how dare you interrupt me with you know asking for bread and, and water at a time when I'm devising a grand universal scheme for the benevolent you know the, the the betterment of a whole of humankind so basically satirically making this point that 
philanthropy can at its worst get too caught up in kind of grandiose top-down utopian visions and forget the importance of sort of basic humanity and and caring about individuals and that i think is a lesson that we continue to need to learn today very much is there also something to the distinction i sort of have in my head between charity as being more sort of bottom up about about the rest of us normal people giving small donations to to some appeal or cause and philanthropy being more top down being about people with with great fortunes deciding that they are going to put their resources wholeheartedly into some particular project you know be it disease eradication or education of girls or whatever is that is that a distinction that's useful to to keep in mind it's a really interesting question and it's a difficult one and one that causes a lot of disagreement because i think in sort of common parlance, absolutely yes. I think often charity is a shorthand for sort of small-scale everyday giving and philanthropy is a shorthand for giving by people with larger amounts of money. I think when you dig into it, that distinction starts to look less useful because actually there are examples of people giving very large amounts of money that are quite reactive and, and not very considered, whereas there are people giving smaller amounts of money and doing it in a very sort of strategic and considered way with a clear aim in mind. So, you know, that looks more like philanthropy and somebody giving a lot of money in an unconsidered way just looks like big charity. But I do think there is something to be said for being able to make some kind of distinction, whether it's using the terminology in that way or not, between the giving of everyday people like you or I and the giving of you know multi-billionaires like um, you know Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg only because I think they bring different challenges because when you're giving at that scale you have an ability to influence the direction of public policy or the way that governments operate in a way that you know I don't feel like any giving that I do is ever going to have uh, that that kind of uh, impact. So, so I do think it's important to differentiate whether the distinction between philanthropy and charity is the right one for getting at that point. I don't know. So we thought it might be interesting to talk about effective altruism mm. in this context because it's had quite a lot of attention recently. For so, for someone who's perhaps not quite clear about what this movement is. Can you just say what it, what it seeks to do and um, who's associated with it primarily? It's a particular movement that's emerged in the last, I guess, decade really, or it goes back a little bit further than that. Um, and it's, it started life as a kind of philosophical school of thought born out of the work, particularly of, of philosophers like Peter Singer, who adopts quite a utilitarian view. So the idea that the aim should be to do the greatest good for the greatest number. And this was taken on board by a group of um, youngish philosophers in, in Oxford in particular, people like Will McCaskill, who's become sort of well-known as a figurehead for the movement. And the idea behind effective altruism, at least initially, was that it was supposed to be a, a template for how you should actually aim to do good in the world. The idea being you shouldn't, as a donor or an individual, think about what it is that you care about you should start from the point of view of, well, how can I do the ma the greatest good in the world with the resources available to me? And you should be kind of agnostic about what that means in terms of cause areas. So this meant initially there was a lot of focus on things like international uh, development and giving in, in sort of emerging economies and supporting things like deworming and mosquito nets and preventative medicine. Latterly, it's morphed into, in different ways, into focusing on so-called kind of existential threats. So things like the possibility that a super intelligent uh, computer might one day go rogue and, and threaten humanity. As a result, it's become quite contentious in, in recent years. 
Yes, I mean that that points to, I guess, the fact if some if someone with a large fortune decides that is a priority, then you know they can shift the balance of where resources are, are put. I mean, if you would take a vote on it democratically, probably the emergence of a superintelligence wouldn't fe- feature very highly. But I guess what billionaires are able to do by dint of their fortunes is decide priorities, set the priorities, and then follow that through with the the investment, which seems to me to have inherent dangers, let's say, about it. I think it, it absolutely does. And I think particularly when we're thinking about the question of, of existential threats, of, often what we're talking about is things that undoubtedly would be awful if they happen, but the probability of, of them happening is quite low and highly contentious. People don't agree about how likely many of these things are to happen. And you get a sense that actually the enthusiasm for some of these uh, these cause areas from billionaires who've made all of their money in the technology industry probably reflects their own experience and worldview. You know, understandably, if you're a tech billionaire, you probably think the things that are most likely to threaten the world are issues to do with technology. And you might well think that the best way to address those also is, is through technology. So your worldview will have a real impact on the way in which you approach philanthropy. And I think that's really important to bear in mind in terms of that broader question of how much influence people with that level of wealth have. Because as you say, philanthropy fundamentally does reflect individual worldviews and biases. Um, And if you allow it to have influence within our society more broadly without acknowledging that or kind of making sure that we we put measures in place to, to, to kind of protect against that it can allow a very small handful of individuals to have an undue influence, I think, on where money gets spent and and how public policy develops. On the other hand, I guess you could say some of these tech billionaires are in a sense visionaries. You know, if you you were to sort of expect the iPhone or haptic technology to be to be produced by a, a democratic process, it probably wouldn't happen. But certain people have seen visions of the future and been able to realise them. So maybe that that suggests that even if most people don't see the origin of a the origination of a superintelligence as a as an existential threat, maybe you know we just have to allow billionaires to spend money on what we may find chimerical. And I think there's a, a lot of truth in that. And and certainly when you look at the history of of philanthropy there are many examples of where an individual or sort of individual institution has taken a gamble on an issue that seemed very, very marginal at one point in time, but then actually subsequently has kind of taken that issue from the margins to the mainstream by developing public awareness and support and putting it on the political agenda. And that's then resulted in significant social change and legislative change and policy change. And that's that's a hugely important part of the role that philanthropy plays and arguably it can only play that role if it is allowed to be a little bit anti-democratic and to kind of run counter to the status quo so i don't think there's an easy answer to this but i think the question of how much latitude we allow individual billionaires to have when it comes to sort of chasing their you know moonshots or or kind of approaches to philanthropy that they think could be game-changing or transformative versus how much we want to rein them in as a society so that they're not you know, squandering resources, and particularly where those resources are also subsidised to some extent by everyone else's tax uh, money. I, I think that balance is, is hugely important, and I think we're, we're really not grappling with it properly at the moment as a society. And then along comes Sam Bankman-Fried, and perhaps 
suggests that some visionaries turn out to be false prophets. And I wondered, for someone who hasn't maybe followed all the detail of this story, what was his involvement with effective altruism? And and do you think his exam, his sort of spectacular rise and fall, do they say something wider about billionaires and their involvement in, in philanthropy and in particular this sort of hyper-rational approach that we've been talking about? I think, yeah, I think they do. And I mean, Sam Backman-Fried is the, the gift that keeps on giving to anyone who, who is interested in philanthropy and, and kind of, you know, wants wants to dig into to it more. The short version of the story is he is a young man. I mean, he's still under 30, I think, who made an enormous amount of wealth very quickly by setting up a cryptocurrency exchange. But the backstory to it is, or the origin story, is that he got involved in effective altruism and he met Will McCaskill and it was a sort of life-changing event for him. But he bought into the idea that actually the way he could have most impact in the world was not to go and work in a charity. It was to go off and make filthy amounts of money uh, somehow by you know working, in his case, in cryptocurrency and then use that money to give to, to causes that effective altruism says are the right ones to give to. The interesting thing about Sam Bankman-Fried is obviously his empire has now collapsed um in you know kind of widespread allegations of of fraud and mismanagement but it it a lot of people feel as though the philanthropy part of this is not an incidental bit of the story it's actually kind of explains why everything fell apart and the reason is that he seems to have taken the the kind of utilitarian idea at the heart of of um effective altruism to to heart so much and taken it to its logical conclusion that he was basically able to justify almost anything up to and including defrauding people on the basis that in the long run more good would be done because he you know as a brilliant genius billionaire knew what was for the good of society and therefore a few people get you know losing all their money along the way was a small price to pay it's interesting in a way because it's it's i think an edge case i don't think it says that all effective altruism is like that by any means but it does show that the concerns that have been raised for a while about what this kind of thinking could lead to if you let it run amok, that they're no longer theoretical. That does seem to have happened. So I think it's kind of an important uh, lesson, again, about kind of making sure we keep that drive towards rationality balanced with an acknowledgement of, you know, thinking about the harms that you, you might do along the way. That was Rodri Davis, whose book, What is Philanthropy For?, is available now. There are more details about it and the other titles in the series on the Bristol University Press website at bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. That's it from me for now, so thanks for listening and goodbye.